Hello everyone, welcome to Fan Fuel. Now that Speed Weeks are over, Fan Fuel is finally beginning. We're your hosts, Alex Harrington and Nathan Ball, and today we delve into the nitty-gritty of racing with our discussion on wrecks and injuries. But first, it's time to quickly run down the road course action at Daytona. And Nathan, we started under the lights with a little bit of wet weather in the truck race. How did you feel about the truck race? Um, it would have been better if it wasn't for the end. I think there were so many cautions that it kind of got excessive. Yeah, it was the longest to truck the point race of where ever. it took. Yeah, it, it took I don't know how much hours. It took like it felt like it took an hour to finish the last ten laps. Yeah, it was it was a little bit excessive. Only I think it was two hours and forty six minutes, something like that, long. Um, the momentum of the race being cut constantly because of the cautions and and whether or not they were justifiable is is something we can get into in a different day but the race for me just became ultimately boring yeah i would agree 100 percent because there wasn't really much um there wasn't really much going on on those late restarts besides just wrecking there was no there wasn't really anybody that was challenging roads for a little bit so every restart was just okay roads pulls away they crash roads pulls away they crash and just rinse and repeat yeah and i guess i was wondering when nascar was finally going to give up on it and they finally did but was was that last caution to end the race i mean that was underwhelming was it really necessary just like the rest of them were i i don't know i mean yeah. what was what was the problem was it the wet weather was it the lack of experience because you got a lot of young drivers there or is did the trucks just not need to be road racing i feel like part of it is just it wasn't this bad when i went there in the summer but now it's been really bad in all the series it went every single time and i just think that maybe it's maybe it's just them getting a little bit greedy now that they know the track because once they once they had to go there the first time, I'm sure they were a little bit more careful than they were now. So I feel like a lot of it just comes from them getting in over their head. They feel like, okay, I know the track now, so now we can go all out and results in this. Well, I mean, you had a lot of people that were were still brand new to truck racing and, and unlike last summer, where we had, had pretty much two thirds of a season, this was a second race. Um I don't, I don't know that that helped either. You have new faces and new places, and, and I don't think that last summer's race led to any wet weather racing, and I don't think a truck race has been wet. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I, it felt like a very, very, very boring parade to me, and that was because we were behind a car with flashing lights. Yeah, pretty much. I would agree 100% with you. I don't really feel like... I don't really feel like the weather was as much to do with it as much as this was confusion overall. Like, there was one truck in particular. I'm not going to name names, but I'm pretty sure this truck went off on the pace laps in the horseshoe. I want to say they went off on another caution period. And then you probably saw this one. Um, it was on a broadcast. He actually hit the leader, which was Sheldon Creed at the time, and almost took him out. So I feel like there's there's got to be something done about the drivers if they're not prepared they shouldn't necessarily be out there and i don't want to single anybody out but i just something i really noticed and it was a major problem well one of the things is the lack of practice 
somewhat a, a new track. I mean, they've only raced there once. There's rookies that have never raced with this many cars, and you know they've never raced this style of car on a road course. May have never even put laps on a road course. So I think even if NASCAR is not going to have practice at all, they should still have like a 30 minute rookie session. If you've never made laps on the track, um, you're going to get some, and you're required to by NASCAR. Kind of like how we're going to have practice at Circuit of the Americas and some of the other races for Cup, uh, because you know we've never been there. But another thing is, like you were saying, if you're in multiple accidents, you know when when I'm officiating races, if you you've done something, whether whether it's you've been a part of or you've caused three accidents, I'm I'm parking you. So I don't I don't know what NASCAR's policy is on that kind of stuff, but that that definitely could help. But moving on to Saturday's event, the um, the Xfinity race was was an afternoon into night race again, and I thought that was really cool. Um, it was a much more exciting race, um, and to me, it was the most entertaining race of the weekend. How did how did you feel about that? Because I I thought we saw a pretty good strategy. Um, the 16 and the 22 having problems was fun, and and it was just a fun night for me. I thought it was definitely the best race of the weekend from a racing standpoint. Um, the battle between Cindric and Gibbs was really good, obviously. I mean, Cindric was missing a front fender, but still, um, it was a great race. I was a little surprised at Almendinger in the beginning in Cindric because I feel like wrecking over a stage win was probably not the smartest thing to do in hindsight. I couldn't believe it when it happened. Like, it was almost a moment like, there's no way, there's no way this is happening. There's no way this is happening. Yeah, I was screaming at the TV myself. I was in disbelief on that just because, you know, you and I had pegged that as being the battle for the win for that race, and it just devolved after the finish of the first stage. Mm -hmm. The race itself after that was good, though. Cindric and Gibbs were up front for the majority of the race. And from what I remember, Cindric was leading the race up until the caution came out. He had about an eight-tenth of a second lead with two or three laps left, and the caution came out, and that's what – they all came down pit road and they where they cycled out and ended up being so that Ty Gibbs was on the inside and that Cindric always kept in the outside. So that would always Cindric would always kind of get pinned on the outside, whereas Gibbs kind of had a free path to the front because he had one restart where he missed about five or six cars and got around all of them. And Cindric was kind of having to slowly pick his way through, whereas every time they got a restart, Gibbs would just pick off five or six cars in the first corner. Yeah, that's something that NASCAR could look into by just putting the choose cone um, at the road courses. But that's another topic for another day. Um, if I remember correctly, though, Ty was kind of running down the 22 right there before that caution you're speaking of. That was a, a showing um, that I didn't I didn't know was going to happen. You know, the kids in his first National Series start. And he looked good. He looked really good. Personally, I'm thinking that team is going to dominate the 54 in Xfinity this year because he's got 14 more races in that car, not to mention. And then you've got Truex is in it, Bush is in it, Hamlin's in it. I, I genuinely feel like this car could win 10 or more races if it's given enough, um, if it's got enough luck and enough speed. I mean, it, it won in its first race with Ty Gibbs, so I mean, I don't see why it couldn't win with any of the other cup guys. Yeah, no, the 54 car looked good with Ty Dillon behind the wheel, you know, last week. And and him coming in and doing those races is going to be, be good for him going forward to get experience. But it's also going to be something where I guess that crew and he can 
can click should he move up, ex, you know, exclusively to Xfinity next year, you know, since he's 18 now. I don't know, though, from a fan perspective, are we going to hear the complaints that we usually do because you're going to have the five races with Kyle Busch, you're going to have the one race with Truex, and then I, I think Denny's doing a couple of races well. If they do go out and win 10-plus races, is that going to be a oh no bushwhacker sort of deal or is it going to be okay because you've got these different drivers winning in the same car i feel like part of it is going to be at least from my standpoint it's going to be more a fear of the team overall because i'm thinking look if they're winning this many races with all those guys and then they won their first race with an 18 year old then you're thinking okay if this kid is doing this at this age what's he going to do if he gets the car full you know, because that, that team, if it keeps its pace up, it's probably going to be the strongest team in the Xfinity Series, bar maybe the Penske 22. I just think that they're that, they could be that strong. I mean, even if, even if Ty Gibbs goes full-time next year, I would, I would say the same thing. They're probably the strongest team. Yeah, we, I mean, we pegged Chase Briscoe, or I should say he pegged himself for, at least eight wins last year, so we're p- probably wanting to see the same sort of thing from from Cindric this year. Eight or nine wins, just based off the fact that he's not really working with a field that's got a main competitor for anything. But this fifty-four, we'll call it a star car, even mm-hmm. though you know those fourteen races with Ty Gibbs in it. Obviously, out of the gate is a threat. So I don't know. When it comes to battling for a championship, we know that the 54 car can't, except for in the owners. So we look back and we see drivers able to compete the full season under the full season points format during the Nationwide Series um, and just not go for the championship. Are we going to see something where it's kind of devalued if the 54 makes it to the playoffs with all these guys. They bring someone like Ty Dillon or Ty Gibbs in for those last seven races and makes a charge and wins the owner's championship? Or is that just something that NASCAR is not going to broadcast because it's really not something the public eye cares about? I don't think they're going to do anything about it. Because look at 2017, the 18 car with Gibbs was in a similar position. They had Hamlin win races in that car. Christopher Bell won a race in that car. Bush won races in that car. And they won, I'm pretty sure they won the owner's title with Sam Hornish in the 18, I want to say. Well, no, Ryan Priest was in the 18, my correction. But it was them and the Penske 22 going for the owner's title. And they had a laundry list of drivers. So I, I don't think it's going to change just given the fact that we've seen it before. I think it'd be pretty cool if we had something like that happening again, just just based on the fact, like, I don't know. I, I like different points championships and stuff like that, so being able to watch two unfold, you know, right before our eyes is kind of something unique, basically, to the Xfinity series because we don't see that in trucks, and mm-hmm. we definitely don't see that in Cup. Um, but speaking of Cup, uh, we had quite a race on Sunday. I don't know if I myself consider it too good, um, but it wound up with an unexpected winner for two weeks straight. Who saw C. Bell winning a road course race for his first race 
if anything, we were thinking maybe he could do it this weekend at Homestead. No, I'm sorry. I'll be honest. I didn't see it happening. I don't think. I don't think there was a person in the world that saw this happening. To be honest with you, um, obviously the caution greatly aided him, but you know, I mean, he still won the race. He still had to run Logano down from quite a way back, even though he was on new tires. He still had to make up like four seconds in a short period of time. So, I'll give it to him. I think he earned the win. Um, maybe wouldn't have won without that caution, but he definitely capitalized on whatever breaks he was given. So I'm I'm just more surprised than anything, to be honest. Yeah, and then, you know, another kind of storyline from it, you know, we've saw, like I just said, our second surprise winner. Uh, we all we all kind of pegged Michael McDowell as that sleeper pick to get to get a win maybe at the at a road course sometime, you know, in the regular season to, to jump into the playoffs. But he won the Daytona 500, and then he had a really, really bad start. He missed turn one and had to fight his way, you know, from the rear of the field. But, you know, he had a really good resurgence on Sunday, and, you know, I, he's, in, he's in the – top 10 in points after just two races and still driving a front row car. Uh, I mean, how long do you think he can, he can keep that up? I mean, excuse what I'm about to say, but how long is he going to be relevant as far as actual points racing goes? Mm, this is really tough. I don't want to be too harsh on the team, obviously or him because he's doing a good job. I just don't know if the team itself will be able to, to keep up with the other bigger teams for this long. I know that like John Hunter Nemechek had a couple of good runs at Darlington in a front row car, but other than that, the biggest struggle is going to be the non-drafting tracks besides the road courses, like this, the 550 tracks, especially, I think they're, I feel like Homestead is going to be kind of the race where everything starts to slow down or return to normal for them, but they still have road courses. They still have, a couple more super speedways. I think that they can easily get some good results on those tracks. But other than that, I don't see how they're going to be able to do this on mile and a half, maybe short tracks, but I just don't think mile and a half are going to be possible. Yeah. Well, the good thing is Michael McDowell is probably one of the most consistent drivers out there. I'd say he's kind of in the same line for me as, as a Ryan Newman. He always brings his stuff home. Despite the fact that they don't really have speed at those mile and a half tracks, at the tracks like Dover and and the like, I think I think the fact that he's gonna probably continue this good finish um, mojo at the speedways and the road courses. I mean, he's got seven more of those in the regular season, so I think he might even amass some more playoff points. Maybe he wins another stage or two. I think that'll keep him, hopefully, for their sake, to get some playoff points at the end of the season by staying in the top ten in points. I think it's actually going to be possible for them if he can stay out of trouble in the other umpteen races that are there uh, on the schedule where they're not going to be that well. Uh, the problem then is going to lie for them you know, once they get into the playoffs. I think we're all already counting them out of the first round, but hopefully they can surprise us. Yeah, I'll agree fully with that. I would be incredibly surprised if they can stay in the top 10 in points because 
I feel like the Penske cars, Gibbs cars, Hendrick cars, Stewart Haas cars, they're all going to make their way in as the year goes on because there's going to be more and more 550 tracks, more and more handling tracks to where car strength is really going to matter. So I wouldn't be surprised if they can turn heads and have a career year. But other than that, I don't know if that career year is going to be good enough to stay top 10 in this year's points. Yeah, well, we'll just have to watch and see. Um, but also, uh, there was a tweet yesterday that came out. It's kind of dealing with the last two weeks becoming a pseudo-speed weeks due to Auto Club not being on the schedule. Matt Weaver tweets out, the TV contract leading to 38 races being required to be shown on TV. It doesn't say anything about how many of those have to be points races and how many have to be exhibition races or not. And he put up the idea that we make this a staple in the season starting next year by eliminating the clash and just having a 37th points race at the road course for two weeks in Daytona before we start the real season. After these past two weeks, do you think that's a viable option and do you think it's even worth it? I think it's a viable option. I'm not sure if I would pull the trigger on it just yet because of because of how the last few races ended on the road course. There was a lot of ridiculous cautions and pileups, and it almost kind of devolved into a circus at the end. And my fear is that it's going to keep happening because they're they're trying to race like the track has five lanes and it just doesn't. So I don't I don't know if I would want to completely get rid of the clash because obviously. We saw that the clash can be a good race on the road course, and I don't, I don't want the road course's novel, the Daytona road course's novelty to wear off. Because I, if we had it as a points race every single year, I think the, um, the excitement behind it would kind of gradually die down. So, that's that's my ten cents. Yeah, well, for me, okay, so we've got seven road course races this year. We were only scheduled for six. I see people throwing around the idea that NASCAR only did this because this was supposed to be the inaugural season of the next-gen car. And to the same vein as that, the next-gen car is going to be more geared towards road courses, basically because it's based off of the same formula as the supercars cars. I think that it would have been an okay move if this was a move like we were moving uh, the October race at Charlotte to the Roval. If this was if this was the first move, if this was the thing that revolutionized the game, kind of like the Charlotte Roval did, this would be something I could say, hey, yeah. If this was the thing, instead of them moving the clash to Sunday, they say, okay, guys, we're just going to have 37 points races, and we're going to race two races at Daytona. We're going to call it Speed Week, so we're going to have the second points race of the year on the road course. Gotcha. Good. If they'd have roveled it before the roval did, I think it would have been a good idea. Having a quarter of the schedule for the regular season in road courses, I think is a bad idea. And we're we're kind of getting close to that by having seven on, on this year's. And I don't know that NASCAR fans would be able to handle it because it's, you know, even though road course racing is great, it's a traditionally oval fan base and a traditionally oval sport so i think radically moving away from your roots just for the sake of 
quote-unquote entertainment is a bad idea, especially with the issues that, that you brought up about the officiating and the, and the, and the cautions and all that sort of stuff. NASCAR is going to have to do a lot of work with how they run a road course race before I say yay to permanently adding a seventh one to the point schedule. I definitely think that's a valid point because if you saw the article that NASCAR put out the other day in the interview with the one on NBC, it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with the Matt Weaver tweet, but it was, um, it was talking to some of the higher ups and talked about, it basically said, look, we know what we're doing. We're not going to get rid of full course cautions. You know, we don't see reason to do that. And I feel like if they don't learn from other series, how to run a road race as in local cautions, not blowing a bunch of laps under caution, they're forever going to be held back. If they would just step back and look at how other series are doing it, then they would be like, okay, this is how we got to do it. It's, it would be a lot better, but I don't think they're going to, I wouldn't say they're not going to open their eyes, but I don't think they want to because you know how they officiate. They want, you know, they want bunched up restarts and that kind of stuff. And local cautions wouldn't give them the opportunity to do that. The thing is, is they're, they're chasing a rabbit that's not really there. Uh, because if you look at road course racing, the novelty of road course racing is and always will be strategy. Because close battles happen naturally on a road course because some guys use their stuff up more than the guy that's, you know, been saving behind him or they have a better pitch strategy going on, or, 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 you know, this, that, or the other. If a full course caution needs to come out, most series, Formula One included, are going to throw the safety car out there, they're going to bunch the field up, and that stuff happens, you know, naturally. Right. And then strategies are altered during that. But but just doing it every time somebody spins is is what ruined, you know, both the truck and, and the cup races for me this weekend. So NASCAR is going to do have to do a lot of a lot of you know i guess soul searching for what, what kind of officiating um brands they want to be when it comes to road racing yeah uh, on that note however um let's go ahead and move on to our first really i i guess big topic that that we're going to be passionate about uh more so you you kind of came up with this idea um and you made a twitter thread about it over the over the past week, um, basically into in response to some stuff on Twitter because of uh, the the crash at the end of the 500. But we're gonna talk about wrecking, uh, not only in NASCAR but um, a couple other sports as well, and kind of the science behind it, but kind of in more layman terms of of why people get hurt in certain situations and why not. Um, so I guess. Let's go ahead and start with the big spectacular wrecks that we all see uh, in the highlight reels, and that's flips. Um, what do you see uh, with flipping um, that you you don't see with other types of wrecking um, as far as how it's going to impact the driver? Well, first of all, I think a lot of people and I don't blame them for this. It's easy, obviously, to get concerned when you see a car that's, you know, barrel rolling or flying through the air because it looks visually spectacular, obviously. And that's why a lot of people say if you show them Dale Earnhardt's crash at Talladega versus the crash that actually killed him, a lot of people would guess 
that the Talladega that you always you know I hear a lot of people saying oh how did he how come he lived through the Talladega crash but didn't in Daytona crash well it's because of energy dissipation I think that as visually concerning as cars you know twisting through the air flipping all that kind of stuff is the hits inside aren't as painful obviously yes there are some flips that are pretty violent but compared to the amount of injuries that happen in a crash where a car will have a sudden impact with something, either a wall or another car, the numbers for injuries that are related to solely flipping are a lot further down than the crashes that don't look bad. So really, it, it's more of a case of like not judging the book by its cover. Um, looks can really be deceiving wrecks, and that's why I've kind of had, you kind of have to train yourself. The more you watch racing, I think the more people realize that it's, it's always usually the wrecks that don't look bad or the ones that should really be concerning. Yeah. And if you look at some of the recent crashes that, you know, you see on the promos, especially, you know, in my neck of the woods, when they're playing stuff from, from the Talladega uh, ticket sales and stuff like that, you see Chase Elliott on the back straightaway at Talladega, his flip in the 24 Hooters car, you know, that was a, a kind of a minute flip, and nothing really came about it for him. You look at you know Matt Crafton's recent flip at, at Daytona, and and Christopher Bell's truck flip when when he barrel rolled down the front straightaway at Daytona. None of them really got hurt, and I don't remember ever hearing anything except X driver has made it out of the infield care center, right. and. And it's not that flips don't harm drivers because, you know, you look in the mm-hmm. past, you look at Petty's flip at Darlington where his 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 arm got thrown out of the car and, and you know, yeah. it got broken. And then there was the flip uh, in the 15 Bud Moore car for Ricky Rudd where he had to tape his eyes open so that he could see. It's more the modern era flips that they don't seem to harm drivers, you know. Even, even you know, back in 2003 with, with the, the two flips that, happened at Talladega for Elliot Sadler I don't remember him getting too badly hurt so no and I think like you said that flip it wasn't necessarily the flipping itself the first Talladega flip that he had the one in the backstretch he the thing that really caught his eye was when he said that the car got up pretty high in the air and it slammed back on the ground roof first he said that was the one that really hurt the flipping itself didn't hurt it's just you know pancaking into something at a very bad angle is what's going to hurt. Yeah, and 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 that's why you know when we see flips, we want to want to get riled up and and kind of get scared of what's going on. We think you know the spectacular crashes happen. Someone's been hurt, but you know it's not exactly the case. Where drivers get hurt are those wrecks where they. They come to a sudden stop or they get they get hit by another driver or there's a direction change or, any, or they get hooked into the outside wall maybe. And, you know, something I think both of us can remember is the 2013 Fontana race, uh, the Auto Club 400. They're racing to the end of the race between Joe, Joey Logano and Denny Hamlin and Logano kind of hooks him and, and Hamlin, you know, after after a vicious slide, he slams into the inside wall and, and that causes him to, to break some vertebrae. And he was out for a couple races that season. 
obviously with the Fontana crash in Hamlin, you saw the car go straight into an unprotected wall at a pretty bad angle. And it didn't really it didn't really dissipate much energy. All the energy went to the driver, which is not a good case. Obviously, yeah, it didn't look spectacular from the initial broadcast, but then when you show the replay, it's like, okay, this is, you know, anyone who's kind of had experience watching racing, they realize, okay, yeah, that's a that's a big hit. Um, it's the same principle as if you're, um, I don't know the best word for it, if you're riding a bicycle and say, say you fall off a bike and you roll around in the grass, it's not really that big of a deal. You might scrape your knees, but if you're riding a bike and you go into a brick wall, then it's a really big deal. It's all about how hard you hit something rather than, you know, how many t- how the energy gets dissipated. It's just a matter of distance. So if your energy is not dissipated in a long period of time, it's going to hurt more if it's in a shorter period of time. Yeah, we saw um, other crashes like that, similarly to Denny's, where people were hitting unprepared walls, I guess you would say, um, where there were no s- safer barriers uh, kind of like when Jeff Gordon hit the back wall, it, I want to say it was, it was, it was either Vegas, Las Vegas or yeah, yeah it was, Vegas. It was Vegas and, and he hurt his back as well. Um, and then you see, I guess the most famous one was, was Kyle Bush where he hit head on. It was probably the worst one because it had the impact that broke both of his legs. So yeah. We see the the shunt obviously hurting the drivers, but I guess what was different about Kyle's crash that made that energy not dissipate, you know, into his back, but just snap his his legs. Well, the thing with the Gordon accident that definitely played a part in keeping him in relatively good shape is that he hit with the right front corner of his car, so that obviously it. it it pivoted the car around, which it prevented the, the you know, the famous one o'clock impact angle that killed Dale Earnhardt, where when you call, when the car hits, it doesn't rotate or do anything. Um, it, obviously, in Gordon's case, or Bush's case, it would not be a one o'clock angle, but it would rather be 11 o'clock angle if you're talking about the left side. So with Gordon, if he were to hit at the same angle as Bush, it probably would have been a lot worse for him because of that because the energy wouldn't have been able to dissipate over a longer period of time. With Bush, I think the real thing that hurt him, the way he hit, obviously, 1 o'clock angle if you're talking about the outside wall, 11 o'clock angle if you're talking about the inside wall. When he hit with the 11 o'clock angle, the car couldn't really rotate the other direction and dissipate energy. It just came to a dead halt when it hit the wall. And obviously, left front corner first is pretty bad because – from what I remember is seeing it live, the left front tire got pushed back towards the driver. And he, in a press conference, talked about the similar thing. He said everything in front of the dashboard was getting pushed back while he was moving forward from the impact. So obviously the tire, if you see pictures of that crash from the damage, you can see the tire inside where the where the driver's legs would normally extend to the tire sort of got pushed back toward where the pedals are. And he mentioned that he didn't take his foot off the brake pedal. So that's obviously, that's what broke his left foot. And then the leg, I'm not really sure what broke his leg, but it was probably something similar, whether it was probably the leg 
either hitting one of the pedals or it was just hitting the floor of the car because of where that tire went. You could even see the um, the windshield pillar was damaged. It was pushed inward, which usually you don't happen, but he hit the wall hard enough to where everything in front of the windshield was destroyed. It didn't look bad, but the right side didn't look bad, but the left side was completely trashed. I mean, you could tell that you could see why his legs were injured just by looking at the car. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is is that the car essentially crushes like you would a Coke can if you jumped on it. Right. When it hits the wall and, and just so happened to be on the driver's side for Bush and not for Gordon, and that's why one got mm-hmm. hurt and the other didn't get hurt. Right, so, because at least with Gordon, the car was able to rotate and kind of spin around like a top, sort of. Obviously, the hit was so really abrupt. I think it was 70s Gs or whatever, as a NASCAR article said, and Bush's was around 90. The only problem, like you said, with Bush is that he hit at a little bit worse of an angle to where the car couldn't really do anything to dissipate the energy. It just went straight to him. So, With these hits, we saw them on... You know, walls without safer barriers. Um, but we we look at similar hits kind of, you know, that turned into, a, I guess, a meme with Danica Patrick because she always hit the rear, or I should say the backstretch wall at Talladega and Daytona on the safer barrier. So I know, I guess, kind of explain to everyone, I guess, how the safer barrier works because I know maybe some of the younger fans, they're just so used to them being there. Maybe they don't know how exactly it works because that's probably what helped her not get injured, you know, in those crashes. Exactly. Um, The thing about the safer barrier is it, it makes the energy of the hit in that direction less abrupt. So say a car is traveling toward the inside wall at an 11 o'clock angle, which is probably the worst thing that you can have. Instead of, coming to a dead stop with the concrete wall the barrier is going to absorb to a degree it's not obviously it's not perfect i'm not saying it's a soft impact by any means even with the safety barrier it's still going to hurt but the wall itself is going to take a little bit of the energy away which is good because obviously if you look at the wall it's it's like a steel and foam system where they build like a steel section and then the padding, like the foam pads are placed inside of these like foam blocks, line after line after line. And obviously that will take the energy because when a car hits it, it's going to crush. And that crushing, if it, that gives a little bit more give versus just hitting a wall that has no give at all, like concrete. So I think Save Rear gets a lot of credit where it's due, which is good now, but it's really it's a really simple device that has a lot of positive effect. I don't think people realize how simple of a device it actually is, but ever since they designed it, obviously injuries have gone down. They're not immune, but it's to the point where it's to the point where you can hit a wall hard and you can walk away from it. Whereas impacts that don't have a safe barrier might not be able to walk away from yeah, well, the good thing is, is they're they're starting to be less and less walls that aren't covered with safer barrier, and I guess the the simplest way to put it, 
I know you said that the technology is relatively simple, but it's kind of like the similar idea of the tire barriers, mm-hmm. but in a more uh, streamlined and efficient way of dissipating yeah. energy. Because instead of being a spring, like the tires can turn into because they're all singular pieces, it's it's basically a strut with some foam behind mm-hmm. it. And that, that those foam parts are there to take the brace of the impact and then the strut is there to warp outwards on both sides the energy uh, to dissipate, I guess, the impact of the wall coming straight on to the car. Um, right, right. If that makes some some sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, you know, when we look at these, these are all single car crashes. It becomes a little bit more complicated when there's multi or multiple cars involved. So I guess when you see a, a car that gets hooked and slammed into the outside wall or gets hit by another car in the door, despite being on that safer barrier, you know, what what's going on? And, and I guess, can you give me some examples of real yeah. world scenarios where that happened and, and mm-hmm. what, effects it had on a driver well well first of all i guess uh, to add on to your previous point with the tire barriers is that obviously the reason they weren't viable for outside walls on ovals is because you see in open wheel cars when a car hits the tire barriers it can it kind of catches the car and flings it whereas in in an oval you don't necessarily want that because they tested something similar like tech pro barrier in the 90s on the inside wall in Indy and it worked and dissipated the impact for an IROC car but the only problem is it flung the car right back onto the track and there was a bunch of pieces of the barrier everywhere and it took forever to clean up so the safer barrier is good in the sense that it absorbs an impact but it also doesn't catch the car and bring it to a halt or you know kind of fling it around like the tires would and that that prevents any any sort of cleanup time like even in bad wrecks it only takes Mm -hmm. a couple minutes just to put those foam pieces back and reset the steel right they're perfect for ovals because of that they can absorb the impact but they also don't fling the car back into traffic and i think that's kind of invaluable to what ovals are all about um obviously they don't have many safer barriers on road courses because they have enough space to where impacts like that are just better off having tire barriers but well then an oval, there's know, no better way to go yeah, your speeds are down at road courses as well. But, you know, you talk about the outside wall. Well, you know, I've seen cars get hooked and hit into the outside wall. And then and then other drivers may hit that car or or something else happens where where you get or you get hurt. You know, why do why do why do people get hurt when they hit the outside wall despite having that safer barrier there? Um. I think it's a matter of um, it's a matter of same thing matter of energy dissipation the angle you hit at because you know Dale Jr. he got a concussion at Kansas back in 2012 despite hitting a safer barrier he still got a concussion just because he blew the right front at the fastest part of the track and people forget at the time they were doing like 208 miles an hour into turn one after the first race with the repave so he was there when the pavement was as fresh as it's ever been and when he blew the tire, right, when the car loaded up, it went straight into the wall, sort of similar to the crashes of the India lot, and that's what 
That's obviously looking custom is when the car hit the wall, it kind of snapped. Um, it w- Obviously, it would have been a lot worse without a safer barrier, but it's never really a good thing if you blow a right front tire or whatever and go right into the wall. On the angle, especially where not a lot of energy can be dissipated. Yeah, and you mentioned um, Indianapolis. We have saw in the past two years there that the right front blows out and and drivers hit the wall pretty hard, uh, the most recent being Denny Hamlin. Do you think those drivers may have, have had a similar fate? Because they weren't going nearly as fast uh, with the new rules package that Junior was, but, you know, could they have had a concussion and just we just don't know about it? I wouldn't be surprised. But obviously, the safety did a great job. Those were really big hits. Eric Jones had a hit like that in the first part of the race. Alex Bowman had one probably 20 laps before Hamlin had his. Not 20, I'm sorry. I'm not sure who was. Yeah, Landon Castle was in the, zero, the double zero in 2019. He blew a right front in turn one, had almost an identical impact to Hamlin. So I guess um, they're really lucky. That they have safe barriers, Hans devices, and all that. Because say that you took the Hans device away, say you took the soft wall away, there's a good chance that impacts like that can be fatal based on what we saw in the 90s and the 2000s. No, yeah, I remember, uh, I want to say it was 98 when um, Steve Park, he hit the wall pretty hard and got injured at Atlanta, uh, something similar. So, not really a new phenomenon, uh, but I'm glad that we have the safety features we do because you can see the progression of injury to not injury nowadays, but it becomes a more complex issue when there's more than one car involved, like these single car wrecks that we've just described. So I remember one of the more, more recent issues, uh, in the fall of 2019 with, with a wreck, uh, Larson was having, and he he came to a sudden stop when he hit Alex Bowman, and I believe he had a broken rib. So, I mean, when you when you compound issues with wrecks and stuff, what's happening? I I mean, we see the energy dissipation argument over and over and over, but now there's added energy. Yeah, obviously it's the same principle with this because I remember when this wreck happened live. Bowman, he threw a block. Um, Logano's car behind him did not lift. He got out of shape. He was down in the apron in turn three. Obviously, the car was going to spin. We just didn't know which way it was going to spin. It spun back into the into traffic. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, someone's, you know, this is going to get really ugly if someone just piles into him here. And Larson was the unlucky one because he had it flat-footed on the outside. He thought the wreck was going to miss him, and it didn't. You know, at the last second, Bowman just slid right in front of him, and Larson just pile-drove him. So, and you can see pictures from that car as well. The front end of the car is shortened a good bit. I mean, I don't think that I've seen front-end damage like that in quite a while. So... I guess what happened to Matt is it was just a really sudden impact. And he mentioned that his head was actually thrown against the steering wheel as well. But when you're in a hit like that, obviously what's going to hurt a lot is probably what broke his ribs, the belts. I mean, you're 
you're pretty much in a cocoon when you're in one of those cars, and when you hit something hard like that, and you get flung forward, obviously your ribs are going to feel that effect, and when he got flung forward like that, it probably squeezed on the ribs, and eventually it fractured one of them, so that's, I guess that's another reason why those sudden stops really hurt. And that's why all these drivers say to get the breath knocked out of them because you obviously know that if you get hit in the chest hard enough, you're going to get the wind knocked out of you. And if you hit a wall or another stationary object at that speed, you know, you're going to get flung forward in the belts. They're doing their job to keep you safe. They're, they're not going to move, whereas you're going to move. And when you move and the belts don't, it's going to hurt. Yeah, and, and you know, they were a, a five or six point harness, so there there's not just one belt going over like we have in our passenger cars. So you've got you've got a belt over each shoulder and then you've got the two at the hips and then you've got the one in between the legs. And so I could see where something or other and Larson being a smaller guy could have bent and then possibly broken it just just by the impact with the belts not to mention that he's coming into his steering wheel as well i guess a good thing for larson in this instance is so is that it was post that race in xfinity for kyle bush in 2015 so it it was after they made some safety improvements to the to the cockpit and and the Mm -hmm. firewall um because had it not been he could have had a similar fate where you know he may or may not have been on the brakes, but he still could have broken legs or, or something along that that line. And it's interesting to look at each and every one of these wrecks, and, and they're all just slightly different, but the safety improvements from one to the, you know, to the next because of what happened in the, in the last, even though they might not be the same or even similar type wrecks help a driver in the future. So I don't know. I think that's really cool. I don't know if you want to expound upon that, but I think it's really cool to see how NASCAR has evolved with that. Yeah, they definitely evolve. It seems like in that case, one driver has to walk so everyone else can run. And unfortunately that's always the case. Um, no matter how much you keep improving, there's really not much you can do to say that, you know, you, you can't just say, hey, look, that's never going to happen. Because for whatever reason, with their luck, something always happens in a different way that didn't happen a time before. And every time that happens, it's going to lead to new developments. So I guess in that situation, guys like Kyle Busch, they had to kind of go through the first times that no one else had to. Yeah, and an interesting thing about about that is, you know, Kyle Busch's wreck in particular, it led to a lot of stuff with with not only the, you know, firewall reconstruction and, and, and more safety features around the cockpit, but he slid through the grass and he was complaining about it because his energy wasn't, he wasn't not really his energy wasn't being dissipated but he had no way of having grip to slow down the car where it was contacting the pavement because he was on the grass and so we've seen we've seen you know them paved stuff mm -hmm. well I guess the problem was in his conference if you see the videos of the wreck 
the first portion of where he was sliding, he was on the pavement up until about the last maybe 100 yards before he hit the wall. And he said that the reason his car didn't slow down is he was still trying to save it in the process, similar to Hamlin and Fontana. You could see in the replays, there's some, a puff of smoke when it first starts to spin, and then the puff of smoke starts to dissipate. And then when he gets back on the brakes, the smoke starts to billow up again. You could tell that he was on and off the pedals trying to get the car to rotate in the other direction. And obviously, at the last moment, he realized that the car wasn't going to rotate back to the right. So that's when he got back on the brakes and he figured, yeah, there's nothing. He, he can't save it at this point. So it was really just unfortunate more than anything because he tried up until the very end to drive that car. It just didn't, it didn't do what he wanted it to do. You know, I mean, I don't fault him at all for, because a lot of drivers could have just locked the brakes down and spun and given up, but he didn't really, obviously knowing his car control, he's not going to give up at saving a car. Um, it's just that it was kind of unfortunate in how it played out because there was, once there was no saving it, the wall was angled in a pretty bad way. It seemed after that wreck in particular that they did go ahead and start paving over areas where grass was. Like that area that was grass um, right there at the entrance to the road course where he hit is now paved. And then they paved more of the back straightaway. They paved more of the back straightaway at Talladega um, as far as corners and stuff like that. That's going to add to the car control that he was trying to deal with because once you get onto the grass, there's there's nothing there. When we look at other crashes here with a kind of a multi-directional um, or multi-sources of energy, you can look at other stuff that NASCAR may or may not have implemented new safety devices into. One that I always think of is the Eric Almirola crash at Kansas. He smacked into another car and then he got lifted off the ground when another car hit his rear end and then he slammed back down on the pavement and he had a compression fracture in his back and something that's interesting in in that case for me is what what i think of is when you design a race car you don't design a race car to be in the air unless it's a rally car or a stadium super truck you know or a trophy truck something like so when you design a, a stock car to go oval racing, you're not designing a stock car to fall from the sky. So the seat was not ready for an impact from the bottom. The suspension wasn't ready for an impact for the bottom. Even if it was, it had been torn up because it, he was rear-ended. I mean, what can NASCAR do or what have they done since that wreck to, I guess, prevent something like that from happening from an underbody hit that yeah. may be, you know, once in a lifetime. Yeah. I'm not really sure what all can be done at that point. They're obviously doing everything they can. It's just a matter of what they're doing with the suspension and all that kind of stuff. Because it, whatever happens, they can't completely change the underside of the car to the point where it's not designed to go fast. And that's the, the juggle they're going to have to do is First, they have to design their cars to be safe, but they also have to design it to be where the teams can make the cars go fast. And I mean, with Helmer Olin, I think it's hard. It's like a free deal because an article that just where he described it, he said that as soon as he hit the stationary car, Logano, he said that's when it felt like it. he's like, Yeah, someone put a knife in the bag. He's like, Okay, yeah, there was 
he knew something was back when the car hit, and then when the car landed, it kind of just kind of just added insult to injury, sort of. He said that, yeah, it's like, okay, first of all, you put a knife on the back, and then you twist it. So it's just it's just bad luck more than anything. I, I know that Kevin Swindell had a thing like that in a sprint car where the car flipped, and just in a bad deal of luck, he just landed straight on the underside of the car. And that gave him some sort of back injury that I remember from what I recall. I don't remember the severity of it, but it was pretty bad. So I, I guess it's just it's just circumstance. I don't know how I would describe it. It's just it's plain bad luck because they can't design the cars for how they're gonna land because they're not designed to be off the ground. Yeah, well, I mean, there there's always been a safety and kind of speed balancing act that we've had to do in motorsport and you know when it comes to other motorsports other than nascar you know i look at indycar and these guys are in open wheel cars and they are selling the fact that they're going you know 220 to 230 plus mile an hour and when they strap in, they know that it might be the last time that they strap in. And so it's something interesting, you know, they've had a similar ordeal where they've had to continuously upgrade the safety of each of each iteration of their cars because when they hit, they hit hard. Um, so I want, I want to, I guess, switch gears and talk about open wheel hits on the oval side. Uh, one of the more recent ones that I can remember that were in a spectacular fashion was the practice crash for the Indy 500 that Sebastian Bourdais was in. Uh, I believe he broke his pelvis mm -hmm. and he crashed off of turn two onto the back straightaway. Um, so I'm going to assume that you're going to continue with the way that the energy dissipates um, being the main cause of what happened, but What's the difference between a full-body stock car and an open-wheel Indy car in wrecks like this and, and why it seems these guys get hurt a little bit more than the guys that drive the stock cars do? Well, obviously, I guess in that situation where a car goes in with the right side, the saving grace with the stock car is that your extremities are less likely to get injured if you slam into a wall with the right side of the car just because of the fact there's more between you and the wall. Whereas with the Indy cars, when Bourdais hit the wall at the angle he did, which was kind of like between 12 and 1 o'clock, he kind of – he hit with the side of the car, and once everything on the side of the car was taken off, there was nothing to really – there wasn't really much crumple zone. And obviously you can infer that the pelvis had to have been broken from – just from the brunt of the impact on the side of the car, which is right where the sides of the driver are, because the tub is so narrow. And obviously there's only so much they can do to protect the tubs. So they're, they're pretty solid as is, but I mean, sometimes it's just too much of an impact for it to handle. Like that was 120 G's. So I would, I would imagine the difference with the Indy car is that there's less between the driver and the wall that they're hitting as well as the speed itself. Um, 
obviously there's still room for injuries like concussions and all that just because of the jarring impact. It's just a matter of the difference of the car more than anything. Yeah, and we see, you know, specifically at, at the bigger tracks for Indy car, it's, it's Indianapolis, it's Pocono, it's Auto Club. You know, back in the day it was Michigan, and, you know, we've seen stuff at Texas, Atlanta, Charlotte even when they went there. You know, the speeds that they're carrying is going to make these impacts even worse just because they're at higher rates of speed and they're dissipating energy you know, more so because it's it's a, a faster speed going to a complete stop faster in some of these cases. And, and sometimes it can go really, really wrong. And, you know, I, I think to James Hinchcliffe's crash a couple years ago where he hit in between the turns one and two on the short shoot and his suspension went through the car and into one of his legs through it and into the other leg kind of under his groin area. I mean, the only thing is I don't know how these guys have the balls to get into these cars. I would like to praise the fact that they have the whole Metro safety team because this guy almost died because he, he bled out. And and as soon as this crash happened, they were already on to reinforcing uh, suspension and stuff like that so that something like that didn't happen again. I mean, yeah. when, you see, when you see these kind of crashes, what is your thoughts initially other than driver safety? Are you analyzing what went wrong and how do we fix it or, or what? Because I know you being in the medical field – uh, or I guess trying to be in the medical field. W- what are your thoughts? Because you know, some of us we're just looking at it like, "Oh crap, we just saw someone died." I mean, how are you looking at it? Oh man, this is always tough. Um, whenever accidents like that happen, and it's always interesting to see what you when they say, "Okay, this driver's clearly injured." It's interesting to see what their injuries actually end up being versus what you think they are. And for the most part, um, a lot of the people with medical knowledge that speculate, they do end up being right. And obviously the AMR safety team has has G-readers and accelerometers and that kind of stuff in the driver's ears so that when they do hit, they have on file on their computer systems, they've got a list of all types of impacts and recordings to where they know that, hey, if I hit at this angle, he hit this many Gs, he knows that if this guy is injured, it's likely going to be insert injury here. You know, they, they have it almost down to a science to where they can predict what's happening to a driver the moment they see the impact. So at least from my standpoint, we don't have technology at our, on our couch. So I guess the best way for me to look at it would be you have to analyze what happened inside the cockpit to to cause whatever happened to said driver in order to stop it. Because obviously racing crashes are going to happen. You're not going to stop the crashes, but you can definitely stop the injuries. Yeah, and I don't know. It, it's something that 
this this topic, the more we get into it, you know, we, like you said, we're not going to stop the crashes, but we can stop the injuries. You know, the more we talk about it, the more, I don't know, scary it seems to me to be a race car driver. Um, but also the safety improvements kind of mask that sense of danger. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you think, I mean, maybe not with the open wheel guys as much just because, you know, they, they're in a much more dangerous situation than stock car guys. But do you think the safety features as, as we get more and more of them and the cars become safer and safer and safer, do you feel like these guys are kind of complacent in the fact that these safety features are part of their lives now? Well, first of all, um, it's a great point to add on to that, I guess. You could look at a sports center interview that Hamlin had in 2013. He said the exact thing that you pointed out. He mentioned that he didn't necessarily have issue with Logano trying to win the race at California when his back got broken. The issue he had was with how he raced. He mentioned that he raced a 200-mile-an-hour track as if it was a short track. And he said that Logano himself, he said that Logano never had to deal with driving in a time period where injuries were more common. So he mentioned that he took the safety of other drivers for granted with how he races. And I guess not to single him out more than anyone else, but his assessment is spot on. I mean, look at the 500 with the block that he threw. Everyone, a lot of fans were quick to mention, you know, he races as if no one can get hurt. And that's probably because he's rarely had to deal with injuries in his time in a sport. And I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that he, he's heartless or anything like that, because that's obviously not the case. Um, he did sound pretty scared after the Fontana thing with, you know, Hamlin gets in the hospital. And he was obviously concerned at what happened to Almarola because one of his brake rotors failed, which caused that whole thing. But certainly you could attest to that, as in when he's in the car racing for the win, he's more than likely to say, look, you know, these cars are pretty safe, so I'm sure he's fine. Whereas back in the day, they couldn't necessarily, you know, say an IndyCar race back in the 80s, they couldn't just go four wide on the apron and be like, you know what, if I crash, I crash, I'm going for the win. They couldn't do that back then because – they knew that if they did anything that was that risky, they would they could lose their life, they could lose their career. You know, nowadays, the only difference is when they make a move like that, they're thinking, okay, so what? We DNF on to the next week. It's different now because they're not thinking about the consequences because they rarely have to deal with them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and as you said that, I kind of took a moment to – to look back on a few things in the recent past, you know, I'll say last year with Tyler Reddick at a couple of those super speedway races, throwing big moves, trying to take the lead and stuff like that. That was wild. I was at that He's younger than Logano by a little bit. He's also grown up in an era where safety has really been an afterthought. So, you know, it, the point that you made is maybe a bunch of these young guys coming up never really had to, I guess, see the fear as as Denny Hamlin was kind of alluding to in the comments that you said he made in 2013. I don't know, is is that going to be a part of, of racing anymore, or is this, 
I guess, balls to the wall attitude, you know, no fear kind of cutthroat racing, you know, normal as is, is it going to start leading to even more problems, you know, in the future of we're just going to eventually start having, you know, wrecks at, at tracks that you normally wouldn't think we would have been wrecks at. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You got me, this is you got good. my gears turning. This is a really good thought. I think it, it delves down to the dry, obviously driver's sense. You know, a lot of the drivers now are, you see it, like Hamlin mentioned, they're a lot more aggressive at larger tracks because of this. There's a lot. I'm never going to say there's no consequences to what they're doing because it's, it's, it's completely wrong. But what what they're doing is they're basically saying that they're willing to take chances more that they're less likely to get punished for said chances. And you saw it with the, like you mentioned with the Reddick, you know, the, the whole all gas, no break attitude if you're, you know, say if you're racing a go-kart or something like that, you're probably less likely to race that way because you got no seatbelt. The track is probably not lined with protective barriers. And you know that if you get flung out, you're going to go in the bushes. So obviously it depends on what you're racing. Same with the IndyCar guys. They're a little more, they're a little bit more cautious of what they're doing because they know that, say if, it, if they're three wide into turn three to restart an Indy, usually at least one or two of them is going to back out and, you know, live another day versus you don't necessarily have to do that as much in say a stock car, because there's not, there's the likelihood of injury is less. So drivers are not, they don't have that, I guess, in the back of their minds anymore. And I guess I don't necessarily fault them for it. Obviously they know that they can be more aggressive. So they're taking advantage of what they got, but I guess I've never really been that way just because the way go-karts are, they're not, they're not as safe, obviously as a full body car. So I wouldn't, you know, if I'm racing at an outdoor track and there's, there's a barbed wire fence on the outside and there's bushes there. I know that look, maybe I don't want to go side by side into this corner. If I have a chance to get thrown off the track, you know, Whereas in a stock car, you're not going to, they're not thinking of that kind of stuff. And obviously you don't want to race with everything in the back of your head like that, but having that thought process is good because it, it helps you have sort of a sense of self-preservation and thinking, look, I, I know that I could do this, but I don't necessarily want to do this because look, there's, there's real consequences here. And obviously the super speedways with the way they race, you don't see that sense anymore aside from a handful of drivers that are pretty respectful on super speedways, but you'll see drivers throw blocks like that. Like, Hey, look, you know, we could, I could get thrown into the catch fence and laugh about it. You know, <laughs> that didn't really happen back in the day. Nowadays, the whole mentality is going to be different because of, because of what you're describing, you know, it, it, what used to be life-threatening is now a minor inconvenience for the most part. So they're not, they don't have to race with those things in the back of their mind anymore. Yeah, and on, and on, and on one hand, you know, I think, you know, probably the owners and, and the drivers who trash their cars, you know, on lap 15 of this most recent 500 are probably... Like, hey, this is kind of ridiculous, guys. It's not even the end of the first stage. Why are we doing this? But on the other hand, 
NASCAR has kind of played into this with the Speedway package, in my opinion, because they've made it so volatile and allowed for these big runs and allowed for these big blocks to be, I guess, necessary to, to stop runs like that. So, I don't know. This is the last year of this car. I know next year we're going to have a different car, but, you know, the Gen 6 era, we've seen a lot of... A lot of volatility with the Speedway package. And, and you know, when I look back and think of it after we've started having this conversation, you know, the complacency has always been there, um, especially with younger drivers coming up. And I believe that's why we see these spectacular crashes, like the Newman crash from last year, like the Austin Dillon crash from previous years, and stuff like that. Um... I don't know if it's a good thing or not for the sport, but what I can say is that it's not a strictly stock car phenomena. You know, I think in the last few years since the DW12 has come out in IndyCar, I've seen a lot of really crazy speedway races with those guys as well, where they're throwing moves at each other that are not seen in 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 the past and we see wrecks that have happened the the joseph newgarden wreck at at texas the um the wreck at auto club i want to say it was 2013 where the car got stuck in the front grass yeah, that was you know, 2015 that was uh that was like the most insane race i think i've ever seen i mean the fact that no one died in that race was crazy yeah and 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 those guys are in a, in a dangerous situation being in open-wheel cars, and we've seen them get into the fence recently, and it, and it really, really, really hurts. Um, staying with Auto Club, I mean, we, we saw in just a practice crash with Mikhail Lotion, um, I mean, he got injured, and I'm not sure. You probably know the the more specifics of that crash, but, you know, we, we saw that in in the racing at that track in the racing at even Indianapolis, I can remember in 2017 when I was at the track, they, they were pulling moves that I had just never seen before. And so, you know, when we see wrecks like the Scott Dixon crash, uh, I want to say two or three years ago at Indy and he's, he got into the fence. It's like, what happened? Because I don't remember when I was younger, those Indy car drivers being that, that kind of fearlessness that we just talked about with stock car drivers too. Yeah. It's definitely become less prevalent now, but the DW 12 has been phased out. So a few races with the Indy car, the old, um, the old Delara chassis. I don't remember the exact name of the chassis, but it was the last one with like completely open wheels. Um, the one, the last, the, obviously the last race that car ran was the Vegas wreck that, that killed Weldon and they raced, they were that, that car in particular had a lot of pack racing. Now they weren't exactly going crazy, but they were racing really close together. But for the most part, they were respectful about it, which is, which kind of seems a testament to their ability. Um, DW 12 is a little different. Fontana is a really wide track compared to the other tracks they used to race on. So you'd see them fan out like four or five wide for the lead. 
which is incredible considering how fast they were going. But nowadays with the cars, they're not necessarily able to do that. And I'm sure that it was largely designed in part because the drivers were like, look, this is, you know, what we're doing is insane. So I think that it's, they were definitely designed with the purpose, the newer cars to kind of force the drivers to come back to earth, if that makes sense. So watching, watching these past couple of years with the new car, I can agree to that where they're not nearly going as hard on runs and stuff because they're not really able to, to do that. So do you think of, of, of this as more an ability to do it means I'm going to do it rather than just the cars themselves, um, I guess? Well, I think they have to take what they're given to them. And with the current package, with the, the rear spoiler on the cars are really small and the aero screen is going to generate a lot of dirty air. They know that they're not able to race like that, like they were in the DW12 where, you know, it was punching a huge hole in the air. There was a whole lot of grip. These cars seem a lot more difficult in terms of keeping a handle on them. So, obviously, they're not going to drive the same way. So, it's just a – I guess it's a matter of what, what the cars are. The drivers are going to do whatever they can. And in this case, they just have to take whatever – the car allows them to do yeah so even though it seems like drivers have escalated their aggressiveness despite the advancement in safety features they still are something that is going to scare fans just from a shock factor of what's going on on screen so i mean i mean what kind of led to you wanting to talk about this topic and, and what's the most important takeaways uh, that we can all use uh, in our viewing habits going forward? Well, I think what kind of inspired is I, I saw a lot of people like losing their minds over the 500 crash and thinking, Oh my God, you know, how dangerous is too dangerous. And, you know, people are so focused on Keselowski getting nailed and kind of, kind of grazing along the fence that they didn't really focus on Kyle Busch pretty much slamming into his car at full speed coming to a dead stop and then getting nailed in the door again by Cindric. so it's I guess it's part I'm not telling people that they shouldn't worry about bad accidents it's just that they I think that a little more education would probably do them well so that they don't have to get super shook about every single accident that happens, you know. I remember, obviously, because I was at the track, I saw, I was like, man, that's a that's a hard hit. Because I saw a black car that was Cindric pile into Kyle Busch, and I was like, man, that's a, that's a big hit right there. So a lot of people on the broadcast probably just saw Keselowski, Keselowski's impact as the burn of it. So I guess a big takeaway from it is the crashes that are visually shocking aren't always the worst. It's usually another case of looks can be deceiving. Um, that's not to say that visually spectacular crashes can't be serious, but I guess the biggest moral of the whole story would be usually the wrecks that don't look bad are the ones that are the worst. 
like say Kyle Busch in 2015 or Dale Earnhardt 2001, when you hit something at an angle to where your car is not able to dissipate that energy over a longer period of time, it's going to hurt. And it can have a lot of consequences in terms of the driver. And the, almost all the injuries that we discussed, common themes, there was one common theme in particular was that all the drivers hit something really hard and they came to a stop really fast. And all the momentum that was in the direction of them hitting the wall came to an instant stop. And that was the main problem. Whereas, say, Michael McDowell in 2008, that was a really hard hit. But thankfully, his car was able to rotate and dissipate the energy over time compared to how Kyle Busch just speared into the wall and the car was not able to rotate in the other direction to dissipate any energy. So it's a matter of, it crashes, like I said, they're always a matter of how hard does the car hit something and how much distance does the energy, does it take to dissipate the energy? The shorter, obviously, the shorter amount of distance that it has to dissipate the energy, the worse it's going to be, which is why hard hits usually result in more injuries and flips. Um, it's the same principle if you're running. If you fall down the stairs, it's probably not. I mean, I'm not saying it can't hurt you, but if you're rolling down the stairs, it's not going to be as bad as running head on into a brick wall without seeing it, you know? I guess a quote would be um, I'm not sure who said this. I'm pretty sure it was one of the old top gear hosts from England. And he said that speed isn't always what kills you, but the sudden stop usually is. So when you're looking at wrecks, I would always advise whenever a wreck doesn't look really bad or whenever you see a car just get piled or a car pile into an object like a wall or another car and come to a complete stop like that, that's usually what would concern me more than anything else. Um, it's, just, it's just another case of having to train your eyes, I guess, so that you're not deceived. And yes, in some cases it happens. Newman, that was pretty spectacular. But people forget the root cause of that injury was not the flip. It was just because he was hit at close to full speed in one of the weakest parts of the car, which was right over his head. So I guess the best thing I could tell you is to, when you start to watch racing longer and longer and longer, you're going to come to the same realization that I came to of, look, you know, try not to freak out over every crash that's like super spectacular looking on a replay, but focus on the hits that are jarring, you know, focus on the hits that aren't, they don't look as bad, but they are. So just remember that speed doesn't kill you with sudden stop. Yeah. And we're not trying to tell you to just be right, you know, uncompassionate uh, because, you know, as fans, we're always going to care uh, about what's happening on track and, Stuff is going to scare us, but I guess the biggest takeaway for me is, you know, look at what you're seeing and and kind of understand what's happening, you know, think about this conversation that, you know, Nathan and I have had about the energy of the car and what's happening so that you don't, you don't automatically freak out and assume the worst just because something happened. I remember right. I did it, I did it when the three car went through the fence with Austin Dillon, and I did it, you know, probably like everybody did 
during Ryan Newman's crash. Right, and I knew and, the Newman crash. Oh, sorry, but I guess if I add on to the Newman crash, that one obviously concerned me just because of when I saw the replay. I looked, oh, wow, that car got absolutely – I mean, he got clobbered by LaJoy. And obviously the roof of the car where he was hit kind of behind or above his head was a pretty weak point. And you're not used to getting hit in the roof at that point by another car at full speed. So that was definitely one that I wasn't super concerned when I saw the car sliding around his roof. But then once I saw the replay, I'm like, oh, wow, that's like, that's a, that's a big hit. Um, so I guess you have to kind of visualize in your head what's going on inside the cockpit more than anything in a wreck like that. You know, think of what, what the driver is going through versus what you're seeing on the outside of the car. Yeah, you know, and, I guess um, it's excel- the speed itself and the barrel rolls and stuff like that. That's not as concerning. It's just injuries happen from acceleration or deceleration. So, yeah, and as with anything, uh, this this is more of an educational topic than than something that's trying to, you know, scare fans or make you think that that racing is some dangerous orb of of doom that is going to lead to all wrecks. Um, you know, hurting someone just, we wanted to kind of talk about this to be a tool to kind of not invoke panic every time that you see a car, you know, hit another car or a car, you know, spin out or burst into flames just, just because something spectacular happens. On another note, however, um, I think this was a great conversation. I think it was all the bit educational, and I actually learned a lot more than I thought I would tonight. Um, we're going to Homestead, and it's traditionally a race that doesn't have that many cautions, and I, I don't think I can count on my hands uh, any large wrecks that I've seen there in the past 10 years. Um, it's going to be the first real race i'll say that with quotation marks around it of the 2021 season you know so nathan we're going into it it's a 550 horsepower track are you looking forward to this weekend well to be honest with you it's going to depend on a variety of things and i'll i'll probably say the temperature of this race weekend is going to be the biggest thing um as you saw homestead with the 550 package in 2019 it was 60 degrees out at the time of the green flag. It was pretty chilly that night for Florida standards, especially Miami standards. Um, you saw that the, the top line that you're used to never really came in with this package because it was so cold out to the point where you never really had to get to, you never really had to get up on the wall. The track never really got slick or anything like that. So there was no advantage to having a longer distance around the track as it normally would you could still run the wall but it didn't really have the same effect as it did in the older package where you had to let out of the throttle a lot more and get on the brakes um so if it's if it's supposed to be in say high 70s mid 80s for the weekend it should be okay um obviously the wall was really prevalent even at night the wall was very prevalent in the race this or last summer at Homestead because of the high heat, rain, humid, slick, all that kind of stuff. 
temperature didn't really matter as much in the old package because you were going so fast you had to lift no matter what but as long as it's not cold i think it should be a good race but yeah well i'm i'm really excited it's one of my favorite tracks despite the fact that it's on a package that you know i i don't think the majority of fans or maybe even drivers like i think it's going to be a decent race um it's going to be more of my style of racing where I like bigger ovals. I like green flag pit stops. I like strategy racing. I, I'm more of a of a guy where I'm more excited about a battle that happens over time rather than a few short wheel banging mm-hmm. corners. So this this weekend is going to be right up my alley, and and it's going to be cool because you know we've seen two surprising winners and i think it's going to be back to normal i'm not sure who's going to be the top dog this year if it's going to continue to be hamlin and harvick or not but i'm excited to see where the 2021 you know season starts rolling off because to me this is the starting point this is where we're going to see the cream rise to the top yeah i would I would agree in terms of being riding the top. It's the first race that's on on Grafton Oval, so it's going to be really important. It could be kind of a measuring stick for where every team is on mile and halves. It's obviously not going to be the final result because you see teams' performance ebb and flow as the year goes on. It's just natural, but the first time around is always really important because you can see which teams are – hot right out of the gate versus which teams take a little bit longer to get going. And without a big chunk of the season missing because of the COVID break that we had last year, I think it's going to be, a, you know, a, you know, a full season is going to give us more of a feel for how NASCAR was pre 2020, where we kind of see the weeks just droning away and away and away. And we can see kind of the championship picture flow with it. And instead of teams dominating, you know, a week or two at a time because they've got multiple races during the week, we'll see that natural flow and we can see maybe some teams get better in the late running. So maybe we see a, a, a Team Penske lull for the next six or seven weeks and they come on strong 10 races, you know, till the playoffs and then they go off and right into the sunset phoenix so i don't know i'm pretty excited for this year and i have to say um despite my excitement uh i'm not doing so hot in our little uh pick game that we've got going on so i want to go ahead and do our picks for cup series and i'm gonna beg you for mercy but and and please allow me to um pick first this week despite the fact that you won because you've won two races in a row and and i don't know i think i might need a bone to be given or something like that well i guess in terms of predictions if you want me to say mine now i could um this is obviously a lot less surefire than you know picking true x and elliot on a road course but i'm gonna go with ryan blaney this weekend at homestead i know that his track record in particular is nothing crazy at that track but Based on the mile and a half, he was always really, really consistent on that track type. Yes, guys like Harvick and Hamlin were 
they were quicker at certain times, but I don't think anyone was more consistent on a mile and a half last year than Ryan Blaney, apart from, say, maybe Martin Truex, Kyle Busch, Alex Bowman. Those guys were really good on mile and a half as well. But Blaney's last few stats at the mile and a half, especially ones that are similar to Homestead, were really what made me made me clue in on him. You know, he had a he had a good run at Kansas. I don't know if he finished in the top five, but he was in the top ten. That's a track that's very similar to Homestead. He had another decent run at Vegas, similar track to Homestead. Kansas in the summer last year, good run. He hit the wall, so it didn't really give him a good finish, but he ran well. And then just off the top of my head, he had another really strong run in Vegas to open the year last year at another multi-groove mile and a half like Homestead. And then I know last year Homestead itself, he finished third, led a good chunk of laps. So all of that is pointing me towards Ryan Blaine. Um, I'm sure he's not like a surefire pick for Homestead like some of the other big names are, but just based on where that team is at mile and a half, I feel like they're – they're they're not necessarily the safest pick because they don't necessarily have I don't necessarily guarantee they're gonna hit a home run, but I can guarantee you they're gonna be in the mix. So if it ages well, then it will age well, but it also can age really horribly. So I guess it's a bit of a gamble. You know, the only thing is I know we've only raced three races more or less with the Cup Series. Ryan Blaney's had bad luck in all three. He had bad luck in the Clash. He had bad luck in the 500. And then he had bad luck here at the road course this past weekend. So I'm hoping he continues that streak and I can finally beat you and um, and and get a point on the board so that at the end of the season we can hopefully be close enough to where maybe I can win um, based on our picks. And so... Homestead's kind of hard because you kind of want to pick a driver that you think is going to run the outside. But with the 550 package, I doubt we're going to see that high groove come in. So, you know, traditionally, this would be a track that I would pick Kyle Larson for. This would be a track that I would have picked Tyler Reddick for because of his dominance in Xfinity. But I think I'm just going to have to go with last year's winner, and I'm just going to have to go with... uh, a trustworthy pick for me, just hopefully so I can save face and I'll take Denny Hamlin. Yeah, I agree. It's a good pick. I think that, as you mentioned, um, the high line, it'll obviously, yeah, it'll be there, but I don't know if they're going to be two inches off the wall like they are in Xfinity, but they'll probably, you know, they might be two or three feet off the wall. They might not be two or three inches off it. And Hamlin, like you mentioned, he's fairly decent at Homestead, has three wins there I believe so he's tied for the all-time lead and he's not too bad at running the wall when it comes to the pavement drivers obviously he's no Larson or he's no Reddick at it but when it comes to the pavement drivers he's always been decent at running the upper groove so this will be fun because this is the first time that hopefully our picks will be decided on straight up speed rather than whoever has the the least bad luck or whoever doesn't wreck in his last couple weeks because we had, shoot, we had Elliot and Truex. They both had incidents at the road course that we didn't think would happen. 
500. Both of our picks were out. So I'm just hoping we can actually get we can actually get a picks are settled by their speed and not their luck. Well, so far the luck's been in your favor. So uh, picking a driver that has not had luck at all, maybe that swings the luck of our picks into my favor. But who knows? Hopefully it'll be a good race. Uh, I'm sure people won't like it as nearly as much as they have the last two, which have been pretty um, chaotic, at least, right? Chaotic, yeah. I don't know, um, from my personal standpoint, I don't know if entertaining is a good word to say, but um, be, I will be entertained this weekend, I, I assume. Yeah, I guess it'll be kind of like um, more of a traditional race. Like, you might not have the chaos or the attrition, but it'll be a good it'll be a good race for people that like long green flag runs and seeing cars kind of come alive late in the run or cars fade late in the run. I think it'll be that kind of race to where if you like, if you're a purist, you'll probably like this weekend, provided it doesn't, you know, provided a cold front doesn't hit and for it to be just a clean air fest like Kansas was last year. So provided that it stays in a decent temperature, it'll probably be a race that a purist like you or I will love. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, like you said, that's going to be right up my alley and probably right up yours as well. So, you guys listening, you can also join into the conversation and let us know how you think Homestead will go. Is it going to be up your alley? Do you like long green flag runs? Do you like the chaos that we saw at the Super Speedway at Daytona? Do you like the variety that the road course races bring? Uh, follow us on Twitter and, you know, let us know this kind of stuff so that we can feature your thoughts and potentially even yourself on to the, one of the podcasts coming up soon. You can follow us at Twitter on at FanFuelPodcast1, the F, F and P are capitalized. Um, and then you can also find us, of course, here on Spotify, on Simplecast, and then we are working on Google Podcast and Apple as well. Those should be broadcasting our podcast really soon. We look forward to hearing from you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.